comes to us from the good news according to Luke, part two, the book of Acts, chapter two. And I'm going to skip around a little bit through chapter two, so I'll, I'll guide us through. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Then divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking them, said, they are filled with new wine. After this, Peter gives a sermon, tells them to repent and be baptized and to believe. He says, you will receive the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. If you'll allow, I guess, a couple moments of pastoral privilege, today is Pentecost Sunday. It is also, for me, a, a personal uh, anniversary. I was ordained uh, 17 years ago on Pentecost Sunday. Uh, some of you were there. It was in the cafeteria, the beautiful cafeteria of John Jay High School in Park Slope. I remember waking up that morning and, and feeling, I kept having the picture, I mean, this is kind of macabre, but, you know, I was a young man. Uh, it was like dead men walking. It's like, you know, this heavy weight. I was going to 
go and pledge myself to give the rest of my life as, as a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his people, uh, to have a purpose that was bigger than me, to join the ranks, this glorious ranks of people who from the New Testament apostles down through the church era have given their lives and their ministries and their gifts to serve Jesus and to spread his good news and to create communities of faith filled with his life. This was what I found purpose in. It's something worth giving my life to. And it was also heavy. You know, the other time I felt pits in my stomach like that was on my wedding day. It felt very intense to go do this. And I had chosen the day of Pentecost to get ordained on. I had numerous Sundays to choose from in a couple months there. And I chose Pentecost because Pentecost is one of my favorite and foundational texts in the scriptures. I love its description of the church I became a Christian about 17 years old. I came to faith and started following Jesus uh, and uh, wasn't even told to go to church for a few years. I just kind of was around Christians and going to events with them. But then I was told that church is an important part of life. And when I became a member of the first church I was ever a member of, it was a church plant uh, in Austin, Texas. And I couldn't believe that there were these erudite professors at the University of Texas uh, next to people that had just uh, snuck across the border and finding day work, and they were loving each other. And it was such a diverse crowd of people of every type uh, coming across barriers, sharing life, sharing goods, sharing purpose, serving those around them. And I was like, this is amazing. I want to always be a part of this community I didn't know existed. Uh, And I could see the kind of life that we see described in Pentecost in my first church experience. And it's what made me want to go to seminary and to be a part of starting new churches uh, in places like New York City. And so I chose this text again uh, when I founded what was then Christ Church Clinton Hill, uh, now a part of Resurrection in Brooklyn, uh, uh, January uh, 2012. So about 11 years ago, some of you were here for that, planting this church with us. It wasn't on Pentecost Sunday, but I did choose Acts chapter 2 Uh, to preach from. I wanted the first two weeks, I wanted to just dwell in Acts chapter 2, its vision of what God was doing in and through the church. And just from that first two Sundays, I should have known that I was in for a bumpier ride than uh, Acts chapter 2 might lead you to believe. It was spontaneously going to happen in our congregation over the next uh, couple weeks and months and years, Uh, that my imagination and anticipation of what God could do uh, might be a little different than what he ended up doing. See, even that first Sunday, I made the newspapers. Uh, and it wasn't because I was such an amazing preacher that they had to write a, tell everyone about it. Uh, I was preaching this text. My sermon was called A Church in the Wild. Now, I thought that was a creative, contextual, cute name to give it um, because I was young and stupid. Uh, the previous summer's anthem, the, the most popular song you could hear from all the cars that whole summer before, was a hit by Jay-Z, a, a neighborhood son, called No Church in the Wild. And uh, if, it doesn't really matter, but if you listen to it all, it's just the idea that we live in the urban jungle and everyone's survival the fittest and out to get it. And there's no church here. There's no place of refuge or safety or life. You have to hustle uh, or do or die. And so someone was there, and they, had, uh, they blogged about it. And then in the Brooklyn paper, they wrote this. I'll read you some of it. I went back just for fun to read it this morning. That's what I do for fun. I punish myself. The title of that article is The Book of Hov. Clinton Hill pastor gets inspiration from Jay-Z. It starts like this. A new pastor in Clinton Hill gets his gospel straight from Jehovah. 
Presbyterian minister Jameson Galt kicked off his inaugural sermon at Christ Church on Lafayette Avenue on Sunday night, preaching to a crowd of roughly 100 souls about Jay-Z, the self-described savior of hip-hop. A quote from the, the quote from the song. I say, you should know these words, this quote from me in the sermon. One of your own prophets has said them, a neighborhood son, Sean Carter, more properly known as Jay-Z. Then they talk a little bit, a mistake that I alluded to the Barclays Center and the Atlantic, Atlantic Yards, what hadn't happened yet, as a public works project. And then I compared the Tower of Babel to a public works project. So they said I called Jay-Z's whole participation in that a, a, a Babel effort and that they were like the Tower of Babel people. Um, tried to set up me, little old me, versus Jay-Z. I said at the end something like, he grew up here, he knows what it's like to experience the good and bad uh, and want to talk about it. I'm not trying to diss Jay-Z. I'm saying he's expressing what it's like to live in the city for a lot of people today. Not, not only do I enjoy many of his beats, but we understand that he's expressing something true. It's very easy to live in our neighborhood and in our city and build your life to feel like you're the one who has to protect yourself, that you're all alone. Okay, so my personal Pentecost was off to a rough start, right? We're speaking the exact same language of English, and yet there was no understanding, uh, and it went in the papers that way. But see, also, I didn't understand as much as I understand now, and of course, as much as I hope to understand later in life. I was young and naive, and I sort of thought that if you just preached the gospel just the right way and try to live it out uh, as faithfully as you could, that it would look like Acts chapter 2. It would be great. And of course, like any of you who spent any time as people of faith or in any community, in the years since, to be honest, my belief in and experience of the power of Pentecost to actually change human beings and communities has often taken a beating. I have, of course, seen lives transformed and relationships healed and sacrifices made, loyalty expressed, generosity shared in and through these congregations. I've also, like some of you, I'm sure, had my heart broken countless times by the church and by people in it. I've often lived through long seasons in which it seems like the culture of capitalism and New York City in general has conquered the culture of the kingdom of God's love. Maybe this morning you find yourself somewhere on the spectrum between hope and despair. Between a feeling like you, all, you are all on your own, that there is no church in the wild, and yet somewhere between that and a hope that it might possibly still be true, that, that something new could happen, that you could finally find connection to God and to others. Maybe you love the church. Maybe you hate it. Maybe you're indifferent to it. Sometimes the church often actually seems like bad news. Every week there seems like there's a new split, a new scandal, or a new revelatory documentary coming out about something in the church. Whenever this happens, I console myself with history. In a book called The Death of the Popes, it shows that one-third of all the popes elected between 872 and 1012 died violently, many at the hands of their successors. And I was going to go on and read you all the stuff that they did to one another, but it is terrible, okay? There's lots of beheadings and homicide and perjury and sacrilege and even incest. It's nuts. So I just console myself and say, well, at least we haven't hit rock bottom yet. But no, it's stories like these that so many people think of when they think of Christianity, and they think, well, if there's anything true about that Jesus guy, I haven't really read the Gospels in a while, but I don't know. If he's associated with those people, I'm not so sure. It seems like God would do better without the church. That the church actually seems like a barrier to faith for many people. 
And see, that's not just true of non-Christians or the non-believer as they sing in the song. I've heard many Christians say, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sins. I believe in God's word. I try to live accordingly, but I could live without the church. It doesn't really help me that much. Church is optional at best. And so I ask you this morning, you can just answer rhetorically in your head, in your heart, but why are you here this morning? What are you hoping to accomplish or to receive? What drew you here? It's a long holiday weekend. You could be doing any number of other things. And we know it's not easy. You're tired. The weather doesn't always help. Maybe you're dragging kids around. You're thinking about your job. You have social anxiety. So why? Just to hear some random guy talk for a minute or to have a nibble of a free snack after the service is over? What's the point of the things we do together as a church? And more importantly, how could the church itself, how could we, at least as part of the global church, become a part of the good news again? Not just proclaimers of a good news, of a disembodied message, but to actually be the good news, as was read in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12 earlier, that we actually become part of the good news. Not just the messengers of it, but the actual experience and foretaste of God's good news, of the gospel. And what I can tell you this morning is that what I do every time I lose faith, which is daily, often, or I lose faith in my own vocation or in our vocation together as a church, as a people, what I try to do is to go back to the good news. To go back to the good news wherever it exists in the New Testament, but also, especially in Acts chapter 2, and to try, by the power of God's grace, to believe the good news again. And that as I believe this good news more and more, I have hope that we, together, by believing the good news again, might become the good news again. So let's revisit the story. It's our origin story. It is our purpose. It is God's goal for the world in us and through us. Acts chapter 2, if you didn't know the context, Jesus has been crucified he has been raised from the dead. He spends some time with his disciples. Then he's ascending into heaven. He says, wait here. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit upon you. And they don't really know what he's talking about. He's alluded to it in many ways. The comforter, the helper. It's better if I go. You know, here I am just using my vocal cords in this little uh, location on the earth. But now I'm going to go up and my spirit's going to go inside of you and inside of people everywhere. We're not going to be bound by location or one pair of vocal cords. The spirit will be with all people And this is what they've been waiting for. This is what the Old Testament was waiting for. This is what Jesus tells them to wait for. And there they are, and it says, I'll just read the first couple verses again. The day of Pentecost finally arrived. They're all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. This amazing picture and foretaste of God filling people all in all and doing amazing things through them. And everyone's confused. Some people are like, this is amazing. This is, this is 
overcoming every barrier that's ever been erected by any human being anywhere. And that was the list of long names and cultures and ethnicities and races and all the things you heard. We don't understand. There's something that's bringing us together and we don't understand it, but we understand it. Like, how does that make sense? We're being connected. We can hear one another. We understand one another. And yet we don't know how this is. We're amazed. We're perplexed. We're confused. Other people were like, I don't know. Maybe they're just drunk. It seems weird to me. And then Peter stands up and gives a long sermon. He describes what Jesus has done for them and what God is doing through the Spirit, making a new humanity. And he, they say, well, what shall we do if this is true? If, if Jesus died for us and rose again and he sent this Holy Spirit to make a new humanity uh, that transcends all the divisions of the world, then what should we do? What's next? How do we become a part of this good news? He says, repent. That is, change the way you're heading and to go in a different direction and be baptized to submit to this washing, this rebirth, this coming out of the womb, as it were, metaphorically, into a new life, a new way of being. Repent and be baptized. Now, I can say a lot about baptism. It's just here going to be a bit of a way in, but it's not just a personal religious devotional practice. You need to think of it as something more like, and I think of all the immigrant stories to Brooklyn that have happened over the decades and centuries Maybe you read Frank McCourt's beautiful novel. When you read these stories, you realize that people are coming to America not just to be a part of a disembodied message. They're coming because they, the goal, the mission, is to become a citizen of a new land with a new place, new opportunities, new ways of being. For better or worse, I'm just saying that's what's often happening, that you're coming in to be a new citizen, to have a new identity, a new status, new opportunities, new freedoms, new challenges, of course, but to live in a new place. And that is more like what entering the church is like. It is to become a citizen of heaven, of this new thing God's doing, this new country, this new people, this new land, this new culture, this new lifestyle, this new way of living. So the church isn't just simply forgiven moral individuals whose job is to speak some message to people and try to coerce them to join our worldview. Instead, the church is more like a true promised land. A diverse people in a new kingdom where there is opportunity to flourish. And so he says, what do we do? He says, well, quit living in that land and come into this one. Receive your citizenship through humbly accepting repentance and baptism. To leave behind and come to a new place. And so the first thing they have to do is recognize that the place that they dwell, even if it's, you know, at Lafayette and Clinton Avenue, even if it's, you know, on 23rd Street and 8th Avenue, wherever you live, the place where you live, you need to find something about it undesirable. You need to realize that there is something more, that God is doing something more amazing than can be offered in Times Square or anywhere else that we think up. To turn around, to, to believe that he is doing a new thing in and through his church, to not settle, and then to come into his new kingdom, to come to this place where you have an opportunity, it says, to prosper and flourish. And we'll read that again in a second, what that looks like for us. To begin to see, yes, the organism that is the church, but also the institution that is the church as somehow being a place of refuge and renewal and new beginnings. That this land is the land where Jesus is most directly and openly going to rule and reign, where you can most clearly see the signs of his kingdom that this is the place where you most fully and clearly are supposed to be able to see the Holy Spirit of God overcoming our natural tendencies. You know, those things where we give into selfishness 
and isolation and meanness and pettiness. That something helps us to begin to transcend and put those things to death and have these new seeds of life that that weren't always in our own possession, that they came from a higher power, yes, and they're helping us to do new things that don't come naturally to us, that this is happening in and through real people and in real communities called the church of Jesus. And that now the goal is to move there and also to root ourselves to get deeper and deeper into this kingdom life, to learn it out, and that means to become assimilated, you know? To learn the ways of the new land, to learn the ways of the new people, to say, teach, I, don't know, I don't know all of the vocabulary, teach it to me. How are we supposed to act when we do this in the liturgy? But more importantly, how are we supposed to treat one another at home? What am I supposed to do with my money and my body, with my time, with my talents, with my treasures, with my hopes and desires, with my gifts? I don't know. Teach me. I'm in a new land. It's different than the one I came from. Teach me. Because it doesn't come natural. It's an unnatural gift from God that comes down. It's not going to be limited to just some little niche group. It's not a, a, a targeted sort of advertisement. It's something that God comes down and he's giving as a gift to people. It's intentional by him and it's comprehensive. It's going to affect our heads and our hearts and our hands, all of us. And I ask you, where else can you find this promise at least? Where else can you, what other community can you think of has God promised to be doing this in real human beings like you and me? Ordinary people with ordinary schedules and ordinary names and ordinary things to do, that he's promised to be doing this kind of work, to fill them with his own life, to regenerate them, and to make them generative in new ways that are more powerful than their own strength. This is meant to be good news because he calls us the body of Christ. You come into this kingdom, and Peter says it you can't just come into this kingdom and have just Jesus can't just come in and have just the head. You come into this kingdom, you become a part of the body. You become a pinky toe or a kneecap or whatever it may be, but you matter and you belong to this whole body, which is the church. And Jesus is the head and he fills all in all by the power of his spirit, all of us. You can no more have Christ without the church than you can be a citizen of a kingdom that doesn't exist. If you are in right relationship with Jesus, then you are going to be seeking to have a right relationship with his followers, with the church. If Jesus is going to be the center of your life and of your power and of your purpose, then the church will find its way closer and closer to the center of your aspirations and your hopes and your sacrifices and your commitments and your longings. See, for followers of Jesus, the church is the country to which we've pledged our first allegiance. The family whose name is our basic identity the community in which we live our lives and through which we serve the world. We see this throughout the whole New Testament. There are no Christians at large, no lone rangers, but there are men, women, boys, and girls who are committed to Christ and to his church. And this is the church for whatever reason God loves. He just loves it. He loves the church so much that he died for it. He loves it to death. Why? By grace. Outrageous favor by choice just because he loves it. He gives his life to it. He pours his life out for it and then he pours his life out into it by the power of the Spirit. This is where he's investing his literal energy. And so if we love Jesus, if we want to be connected to Jesus, we will find him. We will 
try to reach out and hold him in and through real communities of faith, flesh and blood communities like ours with their ups and downs, with their successes and their failures, with their betrayals and their hopes and aspirations and victories. See, this Pentecost in some ways is a marriage proposal orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. Fire came down, the Spirit came out, it blew people to new places and it said, here it is. You can all come in, just turn around, quit staying over there, come into this kingdom. You're invited to be bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, to be filled with my spirit, to be connected one with me and with these other people. You're here this morning. I asked you why. You're here because a power, a force, or an energy, a person whom you may or may not believe in brought you here. Christians call this person the Holy Spirit and he is right now wooing you. He's asking you to believe for the first time or again that there is actually hope in this world, that God is still active in this place, in this time, through ordinary Christians like you and me, through ordinary churches, that he is doing something extraordinary through ordinary means. This power is inviting you and welcoming you to be here, to be a part of life, to belong even before you believe all the way, right? To partake of the fellowship, to see what God is doing, to start to wonder in awe, like, do they really, are they really sacrificing their hard-earned money to build this thing together and to share and to take care of one another? Did they just sell their possessions and give to those who have a need? Are they taking their precious time in New York City to go serve those who can't do anything in return? Are they, you just start to be in awe, a little perplexed. That why are they doing this? Why do they seem so nice sometimes? Why are they giving their lives away? It's important to understand that we are not in the wild alone. Wrestling with the wilderness around us, this urban jungle that is full of hustle and hatred half the time and honking, not to mention, but also the wilderness within us, that place where you feel so alone, you think, I don't know, can God do it again? Do I still want to preach on Pentecost 17 years later, 11 years later? Do I still believe God's going to do new things in and through Resurrection Brooklyn? And it's important to hear again that we are not completely isolated entities. We are not little living robots that God made a long time ago and wound up and we're running around bumping into each other. We're not merely simply super smart apes that came from chaos. We're not primarily the product of our so-called identities. We are beloved creations that are animated by God himself. We are possessed by and in possession of the greatest force, power, being, and person that ever has been and that is Jesus, who's ascended into heaven and is giving us his own spirit within us, a fresh wind, a new energy of breath, a new creation to move things around, moving us into a community of people. And notice again that instead of confusion, everyone here heard the disciples speaking in their own tongues they were telling the nations what God was doing in and through them. They were undoing Babel, that thing when everyone was confused. Now they came together and understood that God loved them and that he was alive and that he was doing things and he was overcoming all division and isolation to make a new people, to have a new name, new citizenship. And I want you to hear, this is moving towards the end, I just want you to hear again what they did. Do you still believe in this good news that it happened once 
it might happen again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to their fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers. Awe came upon every single soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together. They spent time together. They had everything in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day by day by day, they went to the temple together. They broke bread in their homes together. They received their food with glad hearts and generous hearts. And they praised God and they had favor with all the people around. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were in the process of being saved by Jesus. This is what Pentecost promises, to do something new again in our midst, to fall freshly and to transform us, to renew us and give us life. And now you know why you're here, why you're actually here this morning. It is to believe that even on the ordinary days, even in your harm and hurt that has happened at the church, even in your disappointment and despair, that there are still this stream of living water that is being brought into our midst. And yeah, sometimes we can try to quench it. We can walk away from it. We can try to snuff it out and close the faucet. And yet God still shows up. And every Sunday is a mini Pentecost where he is speaking and arranging and gathering and bringing fellowship and food and bread and life and love to all and filling them, helping them to understand that he is here and that the good news truly is good. The good news is that we not only can believe the good news, but that we can be the good news by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. See, we live in what is sometimes definitely an urban jungle, what is sometimes a wilderness without God, and that place lives within us as well. But Pentecost is the promise that God loves to pour himself out into empty places. He is, yes, still building a church in the wild. Will you believe again this morning? Rejoice and proclaim in his name in order that we might become the good news, that we might be the power of Pentecost for one another and for a needy world. May God give us that grace and power in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.